Hi everyone and welcome to another unmuted episode, the podcast by Big Karma, the company that produces video games starring kick-ass action heroes and leverage their disability to win. On our podcast, we go into the secret sauce of all entertainment industry insiders and how the stuff we love is made. Today, my great friend and favorite uh, YouTube creator, let's say she whispers to the ears of all the YouTube creators and we've been working on many campaigns for seven years. We'll get into that in a minute, but also get into all the many campaigns she's done without me for big name companies, uh, Fortnite, best things is in my bag. It's always in my bag, but today uh, it makes more sense than ever. You'll find out in a minute. Brittany Bagnall from Jerry Brick Entertainment. How have you been, Britt? Hi, Pascal. Good, thanks. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. After all so many technical problems. That hey, that's the story of our lives. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, that, that person who introduced me to the hashtag fuck my life, that's it. I can't <laughs> in. <laughs> that's too bad. That's too bad, but we can laugh about it. Yeah, and we'll have plenty of uh, topics to get into to justify that hashtag when we, we get into the gist of our campaigns. Do sure. you remember how we even met seven years or eight years ago? Eight years ago. Eight years ago, my God, we were both a lot younger back then. Um, you know, I don't know how you ever found your way into my inbox, Pascal, but I'm sure glad you did. Yeah, it's, I was lonely in Karlsruhe, Germany, and I wanted to convince my higher-ups to, that the next big thing was YouTube marketing, and I only had anecdotal evidence and no real proof was in Germany is a problem. And so I basically sent emails to all the MCNs and agencies I could find on the internet back then. And I went through dozens of calls and you are the ones that struck out because you told it to me like it is, which has been our relationship ever since. Yeah. <laughs> but everybody else, you know, they had their pre-scripted stuff to get into and you talk to me like somebody who lives it and is in the space and then i couldn't convince the german higher-ups to do campaigns <laughs> but i could convince phil hickey to eventually take me back take me under his wing and i was working on preload campaigns for uh, seriously it wasn't yielding nearly as much uh, the same results as his big youtube uh, booking of pewdiepie and all that yeah. And all of a sudden, uh, Race Against Slime, the first version for Christmas, I was realizing that if I don't get into the YouTube stuff, my role in the company is going to be, you know, needless because mm. YouTube was where the company was winning. And I told him, let me try and find a couple of Europeans uh, for that busy Race Against Slime. You already have PewDiePie and all that. I can use PewDiePie to get someone else. And then mm -hmm. I called you, and Dad, you will remember. And, and you I said, I want a European, you. not a Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I told you, I remember you told me you can get KSI. You can yeah. still get him. And yeah, sure. And I told you, can you get him in 48 hours, though? <laughs> yeah, you always have tight timelines, Pascal. It's, it's, it's never easy, but it's always worth it. 
and um, you nailed it and you nailed yeah. it to uh, that campaign is one for the book so mm -hmm. i had when i went to phil he told me ah oh, super exciting but 75k i'm short on budget i have to go to a ce lendro to get an extension of budget but this is worth it long story short he got it then he got on the phone on the call with you and I learned so much on that call, I remember, because I finally saw Coach Phil being so calm when he tells you, well, we have a big ask and we have PewDiePie and we have this, but with so much calm and, you know, like putting it out there, not selling you anything, just... No. <laughs> and he's, yeah, Phil's like, that's one thing I love about Phil too, right? Like, that's just the way that he is. And... It's nice to work with people like that, especially in the influencer space. You need that calm, cool, collected head because things are going to go wrong. So yeah. he's awesome for that. And he's always been great at that. I remember when your first email came into me actually thinking back and I was like, he's missed the R in friends. Like, why does he keep talking about fiends? What the heck <laughs> is he on about? I hadn't heard of best fiends because obviously they hadn't done enough with influencers at that point. Now you can't not know who they are. But at the time, I thought maybe you just had real bad grammar, Pascal. <laughs> <laughs> but I figured it out, and boy, do I love that brand. I, I, I don't think you thought I had bad grammar. I think you thought that guy types too fast. Yeah. Well, and we all do. reread his emails. Yeah, we all do. We're all moving too quick, but that's because we're in a race against time. But it's worth it. Now... Before we get into that big campaign with Seriously and KSI against the clocks, KSI and all the others, um, <laughs> before you get into influencer marketing, actually, you were working at Channel 4, I don't remember, was it radio or TV? Yeah, so back in the day, well, actually, where it all kicked off, Pascal, was in Grand Cayman. I somehow weaseled my way onto a radio show fell in love with media. I thought it was great. My boss was only giving me like a 3am spot when no one was listening. And if they were, they weren't really in the best frame of mind. <laughs> um, and then I moved back to Canada, my hometown, and I got a gig in television. I always knew that like, I liked radio. It was fun, but I really had my, uh, my sight set on the big screen. Um, I did quite a bit of work, like just locally where I would like appear at new shops that opened up or people would like send me flying down a new ski hill. Um, and that was fun for a bit. And then I met a guy from England. I moved to the UK and I figured naturally I would just dive back into the world of TV out here. But everyone thought that I was way too Canadian. Um, <laughs> it's tough to cover up this accent and now I just won't ever do it. So, but weirdly when i started that, going that, that's so strange though so you telling me that you were too foreign for the uk yeah apparently you were a canadian exactly. imagine me a belgian guy <laughs> this is so this is so strange to me no you're too canadian for you they <laughs> i don't know i guess like the words i chose just weren't what the brits would have chosen so um maybe i'd have a better luck at it now that i've been here for 10 years but Weirdly, when I was like running around talking to these producers and getting to know people in the biz, one guy pulled me aside and he was like, listen, TV's dead. Like, what are you doing? Don't be trying to get your foot in the door now. It's all about digital and it's all about this thing called YouTube. And like I said, this is 10 years ago. 
Um, so like 2013. And I was like, well, what do you mean? Like YouTube? <laughs> and he was like, oh, these people like share their lives on YouTube and they like record videos every single day. And to me at the time, YouTube, I know a lot of people say this, but it was just like stupid cat videos. Like we used it as like a dumping ground on the TV station that I worked for to put like behind the scenes clips and stuff. And so I was like, I don't understand what this guy's trying to tell me. Like, just tell me I didn't get the job, whatever. But he put me in the direction of these people who worked in digital, worked on YouTube, and they were what was called an MCN, which is now a bit of a bad word. Um, we we just got into that with Phil Runta in the last episode because he worked at full screen. He was employee yes. number nine at full screen. And he got into all the good and bad of MCNs. Exactly. And like, don't get me wrong. A lot of what the groundwork that MCNs did was genius. Like, well, where they all came from. and was like pioneering. Was, Let's put it yeah. this way. It was pioneering. Absolutely. And like the influencers needed that. Like the creators needed that sort of like home or a group of people to guide them and help them and understand like these people aren't, they, they weren't brought up with business degrees or understand how to work with big clients or brands or agencies. So it made sense for a while. And then obviously like everything, people started getting taken advantage of the deals weren't as great as they sounded. And anyways, this is where I got my shoe in. I worked for these really cool guys in London. It was like a boutique influencer agency that only focused on like a core group of cool UK influencers who were like the biggest names and destined for greatness. So I was pumped because, you know, when I would name drop these people to people or I'd go for lunch, people knew who they were. And I was like, I have no idea who these kids are. <laughs> um, but everyone was just pumped to like get a free burger at the end of the day. And then I started to realize it was just a common theme across all these influencers that they wanted to quit their shitty jobs and they wanted to do YouTube full time and they wanted to earn enough brand dollar to make it make sense for them. Nothing crazy, um, but they just wanted to be able to do this full time. And I felt like the big disconnect that we had in the MCN world, not just where I worked, but like all of the MCNs was that all of the sales teams came from a TV background. And so they were like trying to sell frequency and views and all this stuff. And they were like, just get this Emma chick to promote Big Mac's new, like double Big Mac. And I'm like, yeah, but guys, she's a vegan. And they were like, <laughs> yeah, but who cares, Brit? Like it's eight grand. And I'm like, yeah, but like Emma's a vegan. She doesn't eat meat. Like her whole audience knows she doesn't eat that. Like what? it just won't work. Like this is why her fans love her because they know her. So there's this always this like. The word authentic was not yet in fashion and the tv people were not understanding that authenticity was the key to success on youtube where on tv everything is fake as you exactly. know very well yeah so on tv you can be a vegan today and a meat eater tomorrow <laughs> and a hunter tomorrow so that's when i really started to just realize I'm like this is kind of, this is so bogus and i felt bad for the brands too because i was like I wouldn't want to be McDonald's and booking a vegan thinking that this guy knows what he's talking about. And like this girl's going to drive sales of my new double Big Mac because people are actually going to hate on me for, and, and also she's probably never going to work with me anyways. So I'm just getting the runaround. So I just started to realize I'm like, man, we're all wasting our time here. And, and we were working so hard to make brands realize that there was real value in working with influencers, especially for a younger audience. Like we were really trying to 
hammer home that kids were not watching TV anymore. But the 60 year old CEOs at the top of all these companies didn't want to believe that kids weren't watching TV anymore because they were plowing millions of dollars into TV like they've been doing for the past 40 years of their life. And don't get me wrong, TV serves a purpose. I've seen some super successful campaigns on TV. We've done multi um, like platform deals where we've included TV in it for sure. But and tracking on TV has changed as well. You can go much more granular and you're targeting of audiences on TV because they've evolved. But yeah. the, the era what, that you're talking about 10 years ago, you're absolutely right. There was this disconnect between the young generation flocking to YouTube and seeing mm -hmm. YouTube as the obvious, but also understanding the changes that came from YouTube and embracing it. And then there were the old guys who you're right, we're not necessarily seeing it. And also, as a friend of mine explained to me, maybe didn't want to see it. Because as you said, if you spend the last three years spending millions of euros in TV commercials, plus the hundreds of thousands of euros of creating these TV commercials, and now there's somebody telling you, you could have done both distribution and creation for a tenth of the cost with YouTubers. That's yeah. not something you want to admit to your CFO and to your investors or to yourself. No, exactly. A hundred percent. And I think that like, I'm not saying that YouTube was always the answer, but it was definitely a puzzle piece that people should have thought about and it should have been a bolt on. And I think that like back then I remember talking to our um, like um, commercial director about things and being like digital and YouTube will become a pillar in these brands advertising plans and their marketing strategies. But like, try finding a guy in an agency that thinks that it's worth it to carve out 300 grand for a campaign on YouTube. Like they, they couldn't wrap their heads around it. Not only that, if we convinced them that there was massive value in partnering with these influencers who had the ear of their audience in an authentic way, it was then the next issue of being like, now you have to do the heavy lifting of approving the talent we put in front of you, reviewing their channels, looking at the content, like literally the heavy lifting of an influencer campaign is crazy compared to grabbing an asset and running it on digital or running it on TV. Like, and then you have to give them freedom of creation that might go in a direction you didn't expect. Yeah. And yet you still have to pay. And now you and me are so trained at this that it's part of our daily lives. But yeah. back then, for somebody coming from other media, that was the difficult part. Are you telling me I'm giving that kid so much money and I yeah. can't even tell him what to say and what to do? Yeah. <laughs> that was hard for many people to get over, especially the control freaks, right? If you think about it though, in this way, I get that. And I still sometimes have a hard time with it when I'm trying to negotiate with an influencer direct or their agent. Who's just like, I had a guy the other day tell me like, Hey, look, we get the brief. We do what we would like to do with it. And then we just put it live. Like no one can approve it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> like I'm all for creative Not really. freedom, Not really. but I'm all in favor of creative freedom, but like, come on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they, they're always, you know, crazy ones. Actually, we, we just said a few minutes ago that you've been an on-screen talent before uh, going into space. Do you think this has helped you? 
you know, understanding the tail inside, hand-holding them, because I might as well say it for you, you're really great at working with talents and creators, and you have a lot of patience and understanding, and, and you're great at moderating. Do you think it's because you've been on screen and you understand better, or is it so different that it doesn't apply? So it's, it's interesting, because I think some talent, the scripted prep, all that kind of stuff works for them. That is much more the world of television. Um, but actually the ones that made it super successful early on and how YouTube was first created was the complete opposite. So off the cuff, um, not scripted, just day in the life, take me as I am. Um, so I think that's what is so hard for so many people to understand, like people in media, professionals who have been doing this, like we talked about this too, you know, like these older CEOs that have been around for a long time who are used to celebrity endorsements. And they're used to people coming in, getting there at 6am, getting their hair and makeup done and being handed a script and saying like, I love this. It's good for me, blah, blah, blah. And reading this script exactly verbatim 12 different times until it's perfect. And well, until it's perfect or yeah. less terrible than the first take. Because exactly. it's not always perfect. They're not actors, all of them. <laughs> well, exactly. And that's authenticity out the window. So I actually do think that this is the hardest part of influencer marketing is for everybody else out there to understand it. And you don't have to understand it. If you're not the core audience, then that's fine that you don't understand it. But you just have to know that there's a huge group of people that understand it, appreciate it, and want it and are going to act on it. And I think when I started to understand that, because honestly, early doors, I liked the people involved in what I was doing. I liked the creators. I actually felt for them because I was like, I feel bad for you. You want to quit your shitty jobs. You want to leave school. You want to do this full time. You're super creative. You're, you're um, coming up with all of your own content ideas. You're filming, you're editing, you're producing, you're uploading, you're doing the metadata, you're figuring out the algorithm, you're fighting for the top of that leaderboard. So that I appreciated, but actually it took me a super long time to actually like appreciate or understand why it worked. And I think that's the hardest part with what I do when I deal with clients who are like, mm, it's okay, but I don't really like when she says this. Can you actually have her go back and pinpoint that it's not um, real sheepskin? It's sheer or like whatever, something so ridiculous or like go back and it's actually not um, nylon, it's cotton. And it's like, I promise you, no one got hung up on that. And <laughs> I actually can't send the talent back in to refilm that little spot. Like the beauty of this is they're talking about why they love it. And a script is what ruins this. Um, yeah. So when I started thinking about things differently and thinking about why do people love you? Why do people choose to subscribe to your channel? Why do people come back for your content? Like refreshing to see if you've uploaded something new. Why do Instagram stories and TikTok work? Like once I started to figure that stuff out, that's when I actually started to genuinely appreciate it and start to fight harder for the talent. And that's when I think the talent respected me because they were like, you care about us. Like, and also influencers don't like CEOs. Influencers don't like brands. They don't like 
marketing directors like they don't even like to be called influencers they like to be called no. creators <laughs> I'm, I'm doing that for anybody that's listening on the other side of things we we do usually call them creators i started a kids company that is labeled creators but i think that where where things go so wrong is when big marketing agencies and big brands like think that when they pick up the phone to a creator or send an email to somebody that because there's a direct email on their about page that they're going to come back with a whole business plan and a media package and an outline of what their rates are going to be and an idea of how it's going to perform like that isn't why this was built it just happened that way that you can benefit from working with influencers um and the rewards can be incredible but you can't treat it the same way you work there. You treat every other form of advertising. Yeah. And, and that was a big learning curve for me too. A, a, a different one than yours. I, I, I kind of understood at, quite early that, okay, I have to give up creative control and give them creative freedom mm. because I have to mix my message, my USP, my product, my game with their audience who have to love the same content they already love on the channel and he knows how he built that better than I do. So I should lean towards this, but maybe that's because I had been burning other things before, uh, other uh, experiential marketing. So I was not blue-eyed about this at all, but what took me by surprise was that the views were not correlated to the production values quite the opposite like you said it was correlated to authenticity mm -hmm. to that face camera vulnerability telling like it is like a friend actually on the last episode brendan uh, on two episodes ago brendan gahan uh had a great explanation about that at the neurologic level which was that it's limbic resonance it's a parasocial bond for your monkey brain. It is as if you were listening to a friend because you see his face yeah. so big there and he's talking and he's talking like yeah. he would to you in the pub. And that is somehow more effective than yeah. the slick montage that looks like a movie and your product is just placed in it, but there's no emotion tied yeah. to that product. And that was a great explanation, but We've seen it, we've, we'll get into the Pagani campaign uh, later, but the worst performing video of that campaign was the best montage. Yeah. And the, the, the better performing videos were the ones where it was more the authentic experience of a mm -hmm. regular dude hanging out, that you know, hanging yeah. out at the Pagani factory and having crazy fun. And it's interesting too, because I do think that a lot of the times the fans or the audience really appreciate when their favorite influencers and creators get the opportunity to partner with huge brands and it opens them up to more opportunities. Like that's why Patreon and all those other sort of like um, funding platforms and support platforms and tipping and stuff like worked so well because essentially that's the brand owning that and saying like, I recognize this creator as being amazing and I want to pay them to work with me, that's not a secret. We have hashtag ad all over everything. Um, but 
it also allows there 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 is a whole new level of professionalism and appreciation amongst the followers where people are like i'm pumped like i'm glad to see that adidas is sponsoring these guys and giving them money to keep this channel going and keep this alive because there are a lot more people behind the scenes who take a paycheck at the end of the day like if you're a high caliber creator you have an entire team behind you um yeah. Even like the, even like the a lo loads of the moms that we work on on Instagram, we'll have a team of four people behind them. Um, it, I, I think that's the tough thing. And, is and, and, and Harley from an epic meal time at some point had 16 people living in his house. <laughs> <laughs> and like, but, and, and they're all, they all feel this need to get, it's funny. Cause I bet you all the people living in his house were like his best buddies, his cousins, like, the thing is, is it's tough to build up that trust and it's tough to find those people who will support you and actually believe in what you're doing. So it's so funny because lots of times that's why you see all these people who have like momagers. Like I still know some of the top creators whose moms are answering their emails because it's a trust thing. Um, and they saw opportunity for their kid and, and they wanted to sit there and support them and jump in and make sure that they weren't being taken advantage of. Obviously, there's bad stories. Which is there. another, which is another big piece in that space. Unlike Hollywood or athletes, not all the managers are trained, experienced professionals. Some nope. of them are the best friends, the brother, the mother, the father, um, and it shows <laughs> through the negotiation process. Yeah. So sometimes you kind of have to educate the manager as you go in as a brand about how even a contract is done. Um, but sometimes I like that better because like sometimes I don't think that it's in the talent's best interest to go sign to a massive name and a massive agency that's going to be like, this is the rate or I'm not even going to discuss it with the client. Like That's right. That's right. Oh, and it's not in our advantage as creatives either because yeah. a lot of the big agencies tend to filter things that would actually make the piece yeah. awesome and, and, and kill the, the, the spectacle out of the, of the, out of the whole show. But I think, you know, you, 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 you make me think just right now that I think the fine line is if the on-screen creator makes the brand look cool, this is a win. We made, we did it right. If however, the brand makes the talent look like a sellout, we did it wrong. And yeah, that's yeah. really the fine line you're navigating. Will you get the coolness from the talents to the brand? Or is it the other way around that you do yeah. it so scripted that now you killed the coolness yeah. out of the cool guy? Okay, or, Not or, only or, did or, you or. kill the brand, you killed the creator too in his office. Yes, his audience is going to go down now because he's a sellout. Yeah. And, and that is something I can relate to because I was seeing the same thing in... We've seen the same thing when we were young in hip hop, right? In the mm -hmm. It came out of the ghetto or under brown, and then some of them became sellouts. And yeah. we didn't like that as kids, did we? No, <laughs> no absolutely. However, we didn't mind when Run DMC had sponsors by Adidas because they were wearing Adidas already anyway. So it was yeah. just validation of the whole uh, community. And yeah. these are the moments that were passed. That's the goal, yeah. Yeah, soon after the, the seriously campaign we talked about, the famous KSI campaign, 48 hours against the clock, soon after you went independent, which 
I think is a conversation we should have on air because I'm independent, you are independent, Nunu, our great friend, went independent soon after. And I'm sure we have many people in the audience right now work for an agency, work for a, a boss they don't really like or feel they're not completely valued and are wondering, should I go independent? So let's go into that. How, how was it on, on your side? I, I remember you asked Phil and I, for advice at the time and encouragement, then we told you, go for it. We're going to keep yeah. you as a client anyway. But how was the whole process, you know, the internal one for you? Yeah, I think there's always a concern and you think like, how can I make this work? And as much as I'd love to be the person to say to everyone, like, give it a shot, go for it. That doesn't work for everyone. That's um, true. I was in a unique position where um, I also had recently moved to England. Well, I'd done a couple of years here enough to like learn the industry and make some good relationships and decide that this industry had legs and it was sticking around. So I was fortunate that obviously my husband had a really good job and if shit hit the fan, I would be okay. So there was that cushion there of knowing that there wasn't really other than sort of like hurting my pride um, and trying to justify to people too, why am I not going into an office every day again? And why do I work until 4 a.m.? Um, but that was that was really the big deciding factor for me. But then also there were so many things that just made sense for me. Like I I couldn't do what I wanted to do working for someone else. Like there were so many barriers, there were so many things that just like hoops to jump through. And I see that more now than ever. Like I, I have politics office politics, um, slow processes, bottlenecks, too many people, too many senior people, too many junior people. Like <laughs> it's always a problem. There's too no many meetings, too many meetings, <laughs> too many zooms. And now it doesn't matter. But like, I also dreaded my commute. I hated riding the central line into London every day. It literally was making me miserable. And the luster of London was kind of gone for me. Like, I was just like, I want to need to, I need to go up there when there's something happening and I need to cram my day full of great things. But other than that, I actually need a day to focus and get my stuff done because like, you know, Pascal, an Insta or um, an influencer campaign is not easy. Like it's easy if you have a great person at the helm who understands it and can take the headache out of it for you, which is like always been my goal for the clients that we work with. And for the talent that we work with and the agents, but you ask anybody in an agency and if they want to hit the easy button, I can guarantee you running an influencer campaign is not their answer. Um, it's long email threads. It's a ton of chopping and changing. Um, there's always something. WhatsApp messages at all time. And, and we answer within two minutes and there are yeah. no hours, which, has its yes. pros and cons because there, there will be down times where you have to manage your anxiety because you're just waiting. <laughs> and and it's then like, there will be even... moments where it's 3 a.m., like you said, but it's rapid chatting. And if you don't attend, it's like a doctor. The patient dies in surgery. And <laughs> it's like a doctor. They beep yeah. you. You have to be there to operate. But I but do think like when you I said, gotta tell you, that's part of what makes it fun for me. That little adrenaline, the creativity, the fact that it is not easy. Can I tell you I like a challenge? 
the rewards are huge when we win. Yeah. It has something to do with, you know, I grew up wanting to become a professional soccer player and I played soccer in teams until I was 16. I guess I have that in common with Phil Hickey. Deep down, we are sports people who want to compete and there is that sport element yeah. in influencer marketing. It's not data-driven Facebook buying for the banker in an Excel mm -hmm. spreadsheet. No, no, you, you better have the chops for it. <laughs> And if you don't have that, like if your foot's not always on the gas, like you're gone. I, the biggest thing that I find when I speak to clients who come to me, who, like who have heard good things and say like, look, I've had a, a real bad experience in influencer marketing and I heard you can make my life easier. That's usually the way that it goes. And the way that I see it is like, it's the stupidest things that ruin an influencer campaign. It's because somebody, you know, like someone wants you to run on a weekend and like set aside your weekend. Like you have got to dedicate that time to it, to getting it right. Because like you said, creators don't have a work schedule. Like they're editing until 3 a.m. They'll send you it through and it's there and it won't be processed yet. And you'll have to wait a couple hours till it's up. And then they're off to Ibiza for a day and you can't yeah. go to them until they come back. <laughs> and also, don't you lie to me because I'll see it all on your Instagram stories um yeah, yeah exactly. family reasons you remember that one I'm exactly gonna say it. it's ksi family reasons and then we, we we discover it's the fam so the friends not the real family and the yeah. reason is a holiday in romania what a good family <laughs> reason <laughs> it's everything it's everything but going back to your question about should people go out on their own i think if if you're like the real mvp in your business and, and you're the one that gets stuff done and you put in the long hours and you care and you're the one that people are calling when stuff goes wrong and you have good relationships then absolutely you should like yeah i that, i that, 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 you make built a, on relationships because you did and, and anybody right now says yeah i'm gonna do it then the first thing you do is the first thing that brit did which is to talk to the clients you manage right now and ask them and talents and ask them, hey, if I go, will you stay with the company or will you come with me? To which Phil and I immediately said, we'll go with you. You're the only reason why we even work with that company. We forgot the name of the company until the invoice came. To us, we're calling Brit. So mm -hmm. we'll still be calling Brit. Mm -hmm. Make sure people feel that way about you before <laughs> you you leave the door because yeah. if, if we had told you no great i'm sorry but we need all the structure around you and without the structure we cannot book from you i'm sure you would have thought about this differently right but i also think a lot of people have a misconception that they have to own something like I talk to so many people who are great talent agents that work under big big talent agency names and i think like you put in the hard yards you work so hard your talent love you fine there's contracts in place maybe they won't leave with you and that's totally fine but you have what you need to build your own business go it on your own and it's so crazy for me to think and all the conversations i've had with brilliant agents who are like oh i'm gonna go to another agency i'm like why go <laughs> do your own thing like you you care so much about these talent i think if I was an influencer, I would just have one, 
agent that was responsible for me. I wouldn't go to a big name. I would just have one person that's going to sit there and field my emails and worry about me. And, and care be passionate about, about it. And be yeah, passionate like, about it. Those agents are phenomenal. Like the best agents out there are the ones that have like one or two on their roster. And if there's two, they're very different talent. They do completely different things. And the agent is always on it, can answer questions, can feel like, can get it to a good place before they present it to the talent to know you're not a time waster. But then at the same time, not throw it out the window just because maybe the budget's not right or the timing isn't right. But like, what's the solution? I just find like there's so many lazy people now in the industry that are like, oh, that's way below budget. Oh, that's not going to work. She's at another shoot in Ibiza that day. It's like, I didn't say that was concrete. I just said, that's the aim. Like we can negotiate. You know what I mean? Like I find that like nowadays too, I'm, or I'll get a quick no back on something. And I'm like, you didn't even click the link. You didn't even look at the product. You didn't even look at the game. Um, you haven't spoken to the talent. Like, that's the stuff that really gets under my skin is when I'm like, okay, just confirming you've flown this past the client. They're not a fan. If the, if the talent doesn't like it, easy decision buy. Like I'm not going to twist your arm to promote a product you don't like because it's not going to work for anyone. But I need to know that you actually gave them the opportunity to say no to this. That's yeah. my biggest. That's and, my and many of them play filter really absolutely terribly. Mm. Yeah. And there are many, even after the deal is made and you talk directly to the creator and you know what you're going to do, suddenly you have a manager who comes back in and makes the whole thing difficult. Yeah. Although the creator agreed and, and it's the way it makes sense for the audience. And it's, yeah, some of them are actually counterproductive. Yeah. Um, that That's definitely clear. Um, but... You know what you say about my brother was the same when he left. Now he's an independent in, in construction and all that. But when he lost his job seven years ago, I really, really had to talk him into going independent. And he was looking for all the reasons in the world why this could go wrong. Mm. And it goes back to something that is very underrated in business. People look at people's intelligence, skills, studies, and security versus self-confidence. Yeah. A self-confident person can sometimes beat a smarter person or a more informed person just because about the speed of movement and doing it and learning from doing rather than overanalyzing and doubting yourself. And I've seen that in so many geniuses and people who impress me and who, have, who I admire. But when comes the moment to throw yourself in the cliff, mm -hmm. it's like there is this insecurity, which for all I know, I'm not their shrink, could come back from, father, from their father, from their mother, from an ex-girlfriend. I don't know where it's come on their first bars when they were 20 and who traumatized them. But there is that moment where I see the brilliance in you and you don't see it somehow in yourself. Yeah. And, and you think you're going to fail, not seeing that most of the people you would compete with are worse than you. So why would you fail if they succeed? You know? yeah. It's really strange. It's really, really but strange. Those people maybe just don't have it in them. Like, uh, and sometimes That's I know what you mean. That's frustrating. It's frustrating because you see the talent and you say, without a doubt, you'd smash it. I back you every single day. But the truth is, 
that's maybe just not the life that they want. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I'm not saying it's hitting the easy button either. It's just being able to say, I'd much rather be a part of a team. I'd much rather not worry about where my paycheck's coming from at the end of every single month. And I think sometimes that stress over people's heads too. That's the biggest problem for me. Even simply, I'm better at supporting the leader than at leading. Um, You see that a lot in cycling. There is the Lance Armstrong, but then there is the guy who drives him into the last mountain. And if that guy is not really, really, really good, Lance team is not going to win. Lance is not. So that guy who's working for Lance Armstrong doesn't want to be Lance Armstrong. Yeah. He wants to be the best teammate possible. Yeah. Uh, and he doesn't want to give the interviews after <laughs> the victory. Yeah. He just wants to enjoy it as a teammate. No, that's and a good that, point. That is something to know in your personality as well. Do you like and to I, serve or do you like to lead? Because yeah. if you pretend to lead, it's not going to go well, in my and experience. I, totally. And we see that a lot too. Like um, on our kids' team, we have a team that supports the sales. And they help them to like research the client, put everything together. Like they are masterminds and they're very good at what they do. And we always sort of look at them and think like, move up to sales, like go earn yourself crazy commissions, uncapped, go nuts. And none of them ever want to do it. And the thing is, is like, you can't push someone into sales. You have to be so hungry yourself for that commission check. Your salary shouldn't matter. You should just always have your foot on the gas and be thinking about your next deal. Um, but interestingly, like and you be said, be decisive as well. Be decisive. Yeah. Do you say 10k or do you say 12k now? There's a mm-hmm. bit of pressure coming from that when you have to do it on the spot. If you yeah. do it from the sidelines, just advising you to say 12k, and now I'm gonna watch. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. On the spot, yeah. Again, you have to have self confidence to do it. Mm-hmm. My mother is terrible at negotiating because she is like shy. It's almost indecent in her mouth to say numbers out loud. So you always will dominate her in negotiation because yeah. she's going to say, I'm not so sure about that. But there's no counter. So you're always pressing and pressing and pressing. And if you're like that, you better not go in sales. <laughs> that's hilarious all right now you've been you've had the longest longevity possible working for those posters in my bag best fiends (laughs) i think you've been working on all their campaigns for the last seven years how interesting is it because this let's say it out loud for the audience this doesn't happen a lot that you get a client that you keep for several years. Usually it's, we do what we can do, it's done, and then they move on to the next big Mm -hmm. thing. How interesting in that, in terms of learning experience, data analysis, learning the whole field actually, to work seven years, month after month for the same brand. How does it change over time and how does it change you? I think that we've all benefited from the continuity of it. I think that, like you said, not many people do it, but um, there's so much trust there that oftentimes a lot of people with a longstanding client get complacent. And I think the one thing that I pride myself on with that team is that I still fight for them every single campaign that I do. Like I, 
never dial it in with those guys. I will scratch my weekend plans every single weekend because they love a weekend launch. Um, <laughs> As they should. That's when the audience is watching. Exactly. <laughs> but like, I believe in them. I think they're cool. I think what they're doing is genius. I think they've got an amazing team of people who care about what they do. And we work together. That's the big difference. And when I look at all of my clients that are successful, I can honestly say that I consider myself a part of their team. And that's also been the hardest thing for me at Cherry Pick to let go of because I never wanted to, to let go of Best Beans. And even still, you know how, if I'm not running the campaigns, you know who's running the campaigns? My CEO. Name one other company where the CEO or the COO are running campaigns and in the trenches, not a single one. I still negotiate every single deal that we do with them. I still am negotiating the cost with the talent to get them the best rates possible because at the end of the day, I don't get a good rate for the talent and those installs don't come in. I'm not getting a booking next month. So like they're not aimlessly working with influencers because it's something they've done forever. They're doing it because every single campaign is more successful than the last. And I also know that if I don't hit those numbers, there might, might not be another campaign. So I also am never banking on the fact that they're coming back next month. Yeah, and I think that's, yeah. That goes back to football again and to sports. You're only as good as your last match. Yeah. So if you won 10 championships in a row and you lose this weekend, that's yeah. the talk of the town. You're done. You're a has-been. You can't do it anymore. It's like in sports. But is it hard over time to even look for, because as we know, you and me, we've done it before. If you double book, triple book, the same talent for the same brand or the same game, the conversion goes down, except maybe a couple of exceptions. Best fiends, it was Rosanna Pancino and Joey Grassifa who kept delivering. And, and you, you get your, your gold mine like that, but it's the lottery. Most of the time, the second time you book somebody, you already got most of their rabid audience. It doesn't work the same way the second time. So you have to keep finding new creators for Best Fiends. And they like big numbers. So tier two and tier three doesn't interest them. How hard does that become over time? Because I got to tell you, when I messaged Phil Hickey with, oh, you should work with that creator. You always point to me with, ah, already done. It's yeah. not impossible for me to, to show him anyone. <laughs> I know. It is tough to keep up with Phil. Phil, Phil has expensive taste. Um, <laughs> Winner's taste. Winner's taste. Exactly. <laughs> um, honestly, I do think that they've evolved a little bit they aren't as keen on big, big change. Um, they're a big fan of it. If it's not broke, don't fix it. This works for them. Um, the entire internet knows best fiends. Like it was a running joke every weekend. We'd run our campaigns early doors that people would be like in the comments. This is the fifth video I've watched today. It's sponsored by best fiends. Who are these guys? Like you couldn't get away from them. And that was sort of like the running joke. And then people were like, oh my God, it's the Best Fiends girl. Like, you know, and early doors when I started with Best Fiends, this was a time where I'm not kidding you, like beauty and fashion girls didn't even know what apps were. Like this was, I remember Pascal, when you first wrote to me, I was like, why does this guy keep spelling friends wrong? Like what? <laughs> 
I couldn't figure out what the hell you were talking about. And now I see people on the tube playing it, on the airplane playing it. I'm always like secretly filming people, sending them to Phil on WhatsApp being like, it's working. Um, <laughs> but I do really think, okay, obviously, I guess we could one day run out of talent, but I doubt it. Um, there is always someone new, always someone hot. And what I love about Best Fiends is they're always open to trying something new. Um, right. But it's always one of those things that's like, if you think it'll work, Brit, and then I literally lie awake at night, I'm like, <laughs> take the risk. You, is take, this the risk. Gonna work? you take the bet. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, gosh, oh, because if it doesn't, it's on me. But um, you, like when you talk about repeating and working with talent multiple times, there is a magic number there where it works. And you're right. It's like, it's been done. Let's move on. But I think where Best Fiends has fun and where we can have fun with them is that you can always dip back into those people years later. Like we haven't worked with Rosanna Pansino in forever, but right. if we were to dip back in with her again, it would actually be pretty funny. And it would perform it would be really the nostalgia well. of five years ago that comes yeah. back. It's like, yeah, you're right. And that's the longevity of the brand too. By the way, what you said, that feeling of, oh, it's the fifth time I'm seeing Best Fiends with the weekend. Back in the 90s, because I'm an old guy, back in the <laughs> 90s when we didn't have so much data, that was the holy grail of marketing. Make your audience, maybe not the whole world, except if you're Disney or Coca-Cola, but if you're not Disney or Coca-Cola, at least your microcosm, you want to make them feel like you're everywhere. So if you're going after the skateboarding fan, you want to be on the skateboard magazine, you want to be on the skateboard TV, you want to be connected with Tony Hawk, you want to be, so that the skateboard fan in a week is like, these yeah. guys are everywhere, FOMO. Yeah. What am I missing out? I get a check. And, yeah. and that's what, and it's much more difficult nowadays because at least in, in the 90s, we had these watercolor moments where you could just hit through David Letterman or one of these TV uh, horse holes and mm. you would go into 12 million uh, American homes and that would get you started. Nowadays on YouTube, you have 1.6 million channels. So you have to do it the, the best things way, which is to go all in one weekend, 10 videos yeah. from those creators who cater to kind of the same affinity of audience and surround, surround, surround. And yeah. then, yeah, you have the fear of missing out coming in. Yeah. And that's exactly it is like, you don't have to be a big brand anymore. You fake it till you make it, but your product has to be good. And that's the difference is like best fiends can plaster themselves everywhere and they'll hit those download numbers and they'll see a spike. But if the game wasn't good, it wouldn't work for as long as it has that game. I'm not kidding you. Do you know how many people I work with that are like, nah, I'm not into games. I don't have games on my phone. And I'm like, honestly, download it play it for five minutes and then just come back to me. And if you don't want to do it, don't do it. Literally. I would, I would probably bet my house on the fact that 85% of people come back and they're like, Oh my God, I'm already on level 80. I love it. We worked with this girl the other day, huge name, biggest in true crime, true crimes, huge right now, huge female audience of like 30 plus fantastic talent, fantastic audience. And Bailey Sarian is like number one in the game. We reached out to her. Um, would you be keen on working with Best Fiends? The agent like hadn't really heard of them, wasn't super familiar with them. 
dove in, shared it with Bailey, good honor, good agent right there. Came back and was like, you won't believe it. Bailey's on level 690, <laughs> obsessed with the game. Can you please get her some golden diamonds for the game? <laughs> like, I'm like, this girl, like she actually was a fan. And I love those moments where I'm like, thank you. The agent maybe didn't know what it was and didn't want to take the time to check it out, but she at least floated it past the client, the talent who ended up being infatuated with the game. Yeah. That is a job well done. And I'll tell you, she smashed it. But, but to your point, it's really important that the product is of high quality. Totally. We in marketing cannot, unlike what people may think, we cannot sell shit, or at least not for a very long time, because exactly. the world is out and then it's over. Yeah. And I discovered that at age 20, the first product I imported from Hong Kong through the internet was the cheapest in its category. I would terrible love quality. Pascal, the stuff you really Yeah. 50% return rate. Then I bought the, the product that was double the price of that one, the competing product. And my first business started and I hired a guy and, and I had a, my first company. So the difference between complete failure and opening my first startup was first buying the cheapest product and then buying the great product and yeah. selling the great product, even though it was more expensive and also more expensive to, to buy at my 20, yeah. 20 years of age. But that taught me early on, I cannot sell something that's bad. Yeah. And since I'm not a product engineer, I cannot fix it either. So I have to spot it. And yeah. best fiends, the production qualities are really, really high, but also the retention. I, I've seen their data back then, and I'm sure they're still really good, if not better. People keep playing it over and over and over again. Yeah. So it's not that just one of those flash in a pan. It's not a fad that you play for two or three days, have fun, and then... Yeah. move on you keep playing it for months and months and that obviously gives you marketing pre marketing potential uh, because crazy. you're sending some it's like sampling the ice cream you and i can only make people sample the ice cream but it, then the ice cream sells itself if it's really good people want yeah. more if it's not they say thank you for the ice cream and i don't want to buy it <laughs> no exactly and you you know that right away from reading the comments and stuff too. People being like, oh my God, what have you put me on to? I can't put this down. Like, it's legit. It's good. And also, like, I've worked with talent on products that haven't been great. And I don't necessarily always know that either because I'm not getting every product sent to my house to check it out and make sure it looks good. I look on the website. The clothes look good. The models look good. It looks nice. looks like something I'd like to buy. Send it to the talent. And then they're like, oh, my God, the color's completely different. Oh, man, did I have a nightmare with that with one of another client of mine? Like, literally, it was a poster and print shop. And the photos on the website were completely different than what was delivered. It was shocking. <laughs> like, the clothes you see. Like, I've even been, um, like, caught in that where you see an influencer sporting something that looks amazing. You buy it, and it's like ripped on the seams it doesn't fit right it's baggy here and you're like i'm mad at you now because you promoted this as if it was badass i just paid for it and probably paid too much for shipping and it sucks and like that's 
talent, talent can't do that anymore. Like the second you're a sellout like that and you're um, trying to flock stuff that is bad quality, like you're dead. So yeah. I do think talent are so savvy now. Like they're not going to ruin their reputation and their following that they've worked so hard for to represent a brand that isn't, isn't great. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, you know, the, the epitome, my, my best personal campaign and favorite was the Pagani one for gear club. And I took so many learnings from what we had done with best feeds and one of them was we have to excite them. If they are excited, then it's not just a money discussion. Therefore, the Pagani hookup and bringing them to the factory yeah. and driving in a Pagani car. Uh, and you were there. <laughs> and, you, yeah. and, and you might remember, because that's the only learning. We discussed about the KSI booking 48 hours before uh, the show. What we didn't say is that there was this other talent, let's not say who it was, but who basically came in for a quarter of their fee because they had heard that it was PewDiePie versus KSI and Ellen DeGeneres. And although already famous, they were not as famous as those guys. So they wanted to come in Team UK. Their fee was usually 60K. We said, I think Phil said, we only have 16K in budget left. And I told you that. And then you said, well, they asked if we can do it for 30. And I told you, this wasn't posturing. We really have only 16K left in budget. So either they take it or it goes to someone else. And they said, we'll take it. And that taught me, oh, if they are excited, all rates goes out of the, <laughs> goes out of of the room. And the Pagani campaign, you might remember, I started teasing you six months before. I got something big coming. I got something big coming, but I can only take five and only one per continent. So that they wanted to be the elected one. And But the other thing that you said earlier about seriously was how you say you're like one same team and you work with one another. I got to tell you, hats off to Michael Stasky and that Pagani. I felt the same from them. Yeah. Everything we've done on the campaign without Mike Staskin opening us all the doors and you see how many doors he's opened without him understanding it and getting it. I told 14 car manufacturers before Pagani with that campaign. All of them said no. And they saw the risks. They didn't saw the, the, the rewards. Yeah. And he saw it. And that, yeah, that osmosis. What, Those what guys fantastic. also just they just didn't get it. Like that is back then, Pascal, that was like a long time ago too. Like you were still having to educate people on what the heck influencer marketing was back then. Like nowadays, at least when you have those conversations, people can compare it to things, look at things like back then you were just selling a dream. Yeah. Um, and you're right. Like, and that was high caliber. Like what you guys pulled off on that trip I even doubted it a few times, Pascal, I'll be honest with you. When you were like, we're going to meet in Bologna, we're going to do this. Like literally, <laughs> I do not know how that happened. It was wild. It was wild. And it was cool. But you know what? It and it would have happened without you. Well, we had a few very important people there. That's for sure. But it was, 
incredible. Like you, if you, you couldn't get the talent wrong because it wouldn't work. And it's also tough to, you know, it, it was huge. It, it was unreal. It was unbelievable. It was a really, really, really cool creative campaign, but that's your stamp all over it. Thanks for that. But I gotta tell you till the last minute, it was that we had 12 hours to make it happen. I'm not sure if you remember the detail, but the car we saw, the Pagana Guara Roadster that we saw first out of the factory to see it, three hours later, it went onto a helicopter to Geneva. So yeah. if we had missed our spot, if that day there was a storm or if there was a power outage like we had earlier on this podcast, or well, crash. three months of work would have gone through through the drain because that car was flying later. I know. <laughs> But, but that's when I realized that there are other things than money at play. And that if you give them the opportunity to create great exclusive content and have fun, because I, I still get it from Harley that he had a lot of fun on the trip. And we did too, by the way. We had a few drinks after it. And yeah, <laughs> actually, for the, audience, for the audience out there, if you watch any of the videos uh, Pagani Waiwa Roadster Lounge or Pagani Gear Club or whatever, whether it's on the F2, Epic Meal Time, all the others, there is a donut scene. <laughs> what, people, <laughs> what people might not know, because from the footage you cannot see, is that in the passenger seat of the car, that moment Mike Staskin tells me, you know, Brett is in the passenger seat, right? Oh my God. And I laughed because I didn't believe him. And then he told me, no, really? And I stepped to the car and I saw your face go, oh my God. <laughs> Screaming, oh my God, at the top of your lungs. But those noise of the donuts were making it impossible disgusting. to hear you. You were screaming, lost in space. Nobody could save you, pal. I honestly, that was disgusting. Like, I don't know how that guy did it. I still feel sick from it all. But yeah, if you crank the volume loud enough, I think you can hear me screaming in the background. I know, it was too much. I don't even know why you did it. Just to be clear, I didn't ask. That wasn't yes. my... I, I found out when you were already in the, in the machine and it was too late. And I don't know why Mike decided it was you. <laughs> oh my God. I don't know, but I regret it because I feel like it was like that last guy's spin and he was really just taking... Oh, he, he really just gave it his all. It was too much. It but was, was Andrea Palma. It was Andrea Palma, GT1 driver, GT2, uh, no, GT1 champion, GT2 champion, GT3 champion. And he really told me when he made my laps, he told me that for him it was somehow too safe and too easy because he was driving like 10 miles per hour under his limit. So for him, it's like you driving in the park. And so, yeah, I think at that moment, he had the fun of his day. Oh my but God. that tells you why the other car manufacturers were a little bit reluctant about it. Two of them told me, what if somebody dies on the shoot? A brand, a 100-year-old billion-dollar brand could be permanently damaged if a YouTube star dies on a shoe doing speed with one of our cars at the circuit. And when you did, the, did those donuts, you scratched the back of the car a little bit and Mike really, really 
in, in the back door, Mike said a few things to the driver afterwards. He told him that wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> yeah, well, luckily I wasn't buying the wheel. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, and that's that's the one. Um, you know, when it comes down to like insurance and legal and those things, that's like the one creative killer, but you have to be careful of that stuff, obviously. Right. Like you have to get that stuff right, but it does really curtail your creative. Yeah. I gotta tell you, you. I'm not going to name the brands, but a tragedy did happen on a shoot, which I didn't book, but I was at the company who booked it when it happened and it was on a snowboard shoot. Um, Um, Obviously, you've never seen the footage, you've never aired, but somebody broke her neck on on the shoot and died. And that was a a moment of truth for me. And yeah, when you do... Uh, if you look at Red Bull, for example, or GoPro back in the day, when you do extreme sports, the thrill of it is that it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Like in the circus, you know, when you put your head inside the lion, every now and then the lion is going to bite. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think those guys had insurance. <laughs> That's for sure. No, yeah, absolutely. But like that, there's just those limitations, right? And that's always the biggest problem is, we think up these really cool ideas and then I just hear someone from legal say, have Brit drop me an email. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, let's just see here, guys. But whatever. I mean, there's always a way around things, right? Like you just have to be smart. There's always a waiver you can sign. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sign the waiver. Well, all right. No, but um, yeah, I mean, we, we've certainly had a lot of fun. That's for sure. Yeah. After that Pagani campaign, you went on to Super Awesome and cracked the kids uh, influencer, which was well needed at the time. Let's remember that where all the YouTube scandals about the wrong ads being showed, the wrong videos being showed in, as well in YouTube kids. So kid safety became an issue. And you joined Dylan Collins and his fantastic team at Super Awesome, which ended up in an exit. But I, how interesting was that? Tell, tell us more about that because kids is also a tough challenge, right? Yeah, I think every every single day of that first year, there was a new news article that was going to bury us and end us. But actually, we used it as fuel because um, the beauty of what Super Awesome was doing well before I stepped on the scene was that they recognized, like you said, a need to make the internet safer for kids. And at the time, I was like, what are these guys banging on about? Like, that's the parents' responsibility. Like, why should we care what kids are stumbling upon on the internet? Where's the parent? But actually, that's not the case. I mean, that's a small part of the puzzle, but the onus is in a lot of other key stakeholders. And it opened my eyes to a ton of different things. And those guys, I'm forever grateful. I mean, that team within Super Awesome is a little crew of geniuses. And we've made some great things happen. Um when I first started working with them, none of their clients were working with influencers because they were scared stiff of working on YouTube. They were like, YouTube's not built for kids. And how do you unbuild YouTube? You don't. So we needed to find a way to make it safe for kids and safe for the brands that we were working with. And so that is sort of the stance that we took. So, um, 
Yeah, the, the very first campaign I ever did with them in the kids space was actually with them as a client. They had a really cool app called Pop Jam that was like Instagram for kids. And I loved every single bit about it. Like they had a curfew where the kids couldn't be on there past midnight. It was these cool design challenges. It had blocks. So the comments couldn't, you couldn't swear in the comments. There could be no hate. It was like way advanced for like the kind of stuff we're dealing with on social media now and the tech that they built and the messaging that it like, like the whole idea and the premise behind it. I now as a parent think is incredible. So anyways, they became my client and they'd been spending some money on TV and they were like, Hey, TV's not really working. Like we want to attract seven to 13 year olds. I was like, why aren't you working with influencers? And, uh, they were like, we got three grand. Show us what you can do, Brit. <laughs> and we broke the app, literally. That weekend, we went live with this little Canadian geeky gamer. He's now like buff, super good looking. That was, this was years ago. <laughs> and he came on the scene and absolutely smashed it. So he drove tons and tons and tons of installs. And the rest is history. We started working with tons of kids brands, tons of agencies, and now, yeah, I would like to consider us the leaders in the youth space, that's for sure. Then after that, obviously, it was all over the news. Super awesome, got acquired by Epic Games, became totally awesome because it was totally awesome by, the, by then. Dylan Collins did it again. It's not his first exit. He already had sold Demonware to Call of Duty and Activision at the time. It was fantastic. Uh, statistics tool and a, a data-driven tool. So he's a bit of a genius, I gotta say. But lucky you, you started working with yet another cool product that people love and an ice cream that people love to sample and stay in it, which is Fortnite, right? You've been working a lot for them as of late. Yeah, for sure. So Epic now is like one of our biggest accounts and um, they're always doing cool new things. Um, they're always thinking outside the box. They really champion influencers. I love the way they look at influencers and creators. Um, they're partners. They need them. They understand the value. It's not about like driving installs, driving players, driving. It's just about partnering up with cool people to do cool things. Um, they championed the, the, big, the big Fortnite brand and phenomenon alive yeah. for as long as possible and grow it as big as possible into a metaverse and influencers and creators are part of that world. And let's be honest, like Fortnite made a lot of those guys careers. Like yes. we, did a, we did a really cool campaign for the release of their chapter three. And it was like all sort of like Fortnite forever memories. And there was people, there was guys on there that were like, I was no one before Fortnite. I discovered Fortnite and now here I am. So it was really cool, you know, like. And you have other creators who had a pretty good channel at 1 million subscribers, half a million views. And then when all Fortnite for the last three years and now they have 10 million subscribers, 5 million views of videos, and they don't do anything else than Fortnite, although they were existing years before it came out. Yeah. Exactly. And like, those guys are always going to like forever chat, you know, their, their channel is going to continue to be dedicated to Fortnite. But what I love about it is Epic doesn't shy away from partnering with those guys and supporting them. 
And I love that because most brands would be like, why do I need to work with him? He's already going to talk about me. He's already going to talk about this release. Epic would never say that. Epic would be like, this is awesome. I want to champion him. He's been a fan since day one. He's the OG. He should be involved. It's a meritocracy. It's a meritocracy. He earned it. Don't, don't, don't underrate your wife just because the new shiny girl walked into the room. <laughs> Absolutely, Pascal. You know it too well. But um, you know what I really love about your Fortnite campaigns? The latest ones, because obviously I could talk about what I've loved for the last five years, phase after phase, for a long time. But in the latest phase, which in my view is hard, which is how to keep a brand that is already cool, going cooler and cooler and cooler. And that becomes a, a crazy exercise of one-upping yourself. And what I love is how they do these big tentpole campaigns with Neymar, The Rock, J Balvin, but then they use all the other creators as an amplification of that moment. So we go back to the water cooler uh, event and the water cooler moment. We want everybody by Monday to be talking about that. So we're gonna go all in somehow, like best fiends, maybe time 10. <laughs> and it's we many companies could have said, Oh, we got the rock already, it's a big bet, it's a significant one in terms of money. We've already spent our budget for that weekend. They don't they double down and triple down and make sure that the bet goes to the maximum of its of its value. And I guess it's a lot of fun for you and the creators too, to have those moments to, to relate to, right? Yeah, I, I think they always keep it fresh and they always broaden their audience scope. So like so many of my brands where I think they get it wrong is they're like, hey, 45 plus people really like our game. Let's only work with people who have a 45 plus audience. And I say, why? That's the go do user go do user acquisition on Facebook. Thank you. That <laughs> is completely different. Influencer marketing. Go try something else and go hit these other guys that are going to be super keen to hear about your new product they haven't heard about because you've been banging on about it to 45 year olds. So that's why I love a lot of what Epic does is they understand who their core audience is for sure, but they also blast that net wide open and they partner with Ariana Grande. And like, how cool was that when she did her concert this summer and we worked with a ton of like legit Ariana Grande fans. Um, they just, they're always trying something new and it's all because it allows them to speak to another audience that wouldn't necessarily say, Hey, I want to try this game Fortnite." Yeah. Or hang out in it because now that they want to become a metaverse, it's even, even if you're not playing, Come into your universe, we get something for you. Totally, totally. And it's going to be killer. Like, that's the thing, too. Again, they don't do it half-assed. So you, you appreciate it, and you will check it out. You're going to go look at it. Ariana Grande is doing a concert in Fortnite. How? What? Let me see. It's like Raul Duke's character by Johnny Depp in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. If you're going to do something... Yeah, you get to do it. Great. <laughs> yeah. All out. Totally. And like, 
It's huge. I, I, I love that kind of stuff. That's the stuff I get pumped about. That's the kind of stuff where I'm like, okay, cool. If you have your specific audience in mind and that's the only people you want to focus on, we can do that all day long. That's fine. But you're never going to learn anything new. And yeah. that's where I think dipping your toe into influencer marketing is what allows you to like blow your mind and open it up and be like, Oh my God, here I was thinking 45 year olds were my core audience. And these guys are going to be whales all day long and spend money and support us. I wasn't even talking to these guys and these guys are dropping triple the cash. Yeah. It, it's like, you know, for the last few years, everybody I was telling about when I was telling someone about TikTok, you've got to be on TikTok. They were telling me, Oh, it's for kids. Oh, it's not popular in the U S yeah. So what? They have 1 billion kids in the world. Because it's cheaper to acquire them than in the US, but they're coming for you, same as WhatsApp did, and they're gonna get there. And what's for kids? Well, guess who makes fashion? Guess who starts a phenomenon? Youth. Mm -hmm. So if they get the youth first, eventually their parents have to keep talking to them, so they're gonna adopt it reluctantly. Then their grandparents would like with Facebook. So the youth is the drive. It always has been. So if you tell me it's only kids, yeah, well, then this is the next big thing then. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and the funny thing about that is the people that are like, or the people that are like, oh, TikTok's nothing but kids. I don't get it. I'm not on there. But then all of a sudden they're being served repurposed content from TikTok on their Facebook. And all they're doing is scrolling and consuming and living there. Like my husband's like, I don't get TikTok. I'm like, what do you mean you don't get TikTok? You're still obsessed with Facebook. All of this content's being repurposed and popped on Facebook and you can't get enough of it. You just haven't realized that that's TikTok. So you know, there's, there's something even worse. The other day, I looked into correlated data between a game's audience and what are they watching on YouTube in order to make my next booking. And the data was given to us by someone at Google and if they had taken a look at it and filtered it a little bit, they would have realized that out of the top 100 videos they sent me, only four were genuine YouTube creators. The other 96 were remixes and mega mix and montages of TikTok videos with even TikTok in the headlines. And I was like, you should have showed that to me, Google, because you're basically telling me <laughs> that TikTok is kicking your ass. Even on yeah. your own platform in terms of views. Totally. Absolutely. Like you're going, if you're not going to find it by having TikTok app on your phone, you're going to find it somewhere else. And I just think, um, try it. I mean, we live for TikTok right now. It's so Did good. You see that now you're even going to see it in the waiting rooms of restaurants uh, the doctor, they made a deal. They made a big deal to, display TikTok as a running show in those TVs that are in all the waiting rooms of the world. So they're planning much bigger than just a fun. It's, it's time for them to go head to head with YouTube. But that phenomenon came from so far away and so many people ignored it because it's the new thing. Let's keep doing what already works. Let's not try. Let's not change. Hopefully they vet it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's snackable. It's quick. It's exactly what everybody needs. Yeah, absolutely. All right. What's your favorite campaign of all times? 
of all those brilliant campaigns you've done, what is the one you keep close to your heart? Oh, there has been an awful lot of campaigns. Um, obviously, Pagani was badass because it had 101 moving parts, literally. We had to fly people <laughs> somewhere. We had to get in a super fast car. We had a crazy window to make things happen. So I think when it comes to like ticking all the boxes for creativity, cool, cool talent, like it's very rare that you can get those kinds of people together. Now that, you, now that you've given the flattering answer for me, give me the real answer. Give me the one I, I wasn't involved in. No, I know. I, 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 to be fair, that one was badass, Pascal. That's probably like the coolest outside the box, biggest picture thinking one that we've done. Um, aside from that, probably my favorite and one that I still talk about and one that I still show off to this date was my first ever um, big campaign that I sold uh, before. Jan Wright. It was what's that? Jan Wright. No, that was, right cool doing shots. that was cool too. I forgot about that. Um, <laughs> I thought that was your first big one. The Pagari one with Jan Wright. And was it the F2 or? It was the F2. It was the F2, yeah. It was, yeah, that was the F2 too. That was a fun one. Ian Wright's a beauty. Um, but I would probably say my favorite outside of that one was one that I still brag about. It was for Nerf. And... Oh. They didn't want to, well, at, back then, we didn't even know that kids had YouTube channels. That wasn't a thing yet. And we all knew that Nerf Blasters, like, it's not even kids that are obsessed with them. Like, it's everybody under the age of 100. So that campaign was the best. What we did was we pulled um, loads of UK creators together. And they also wrote to show not just any creators, the yeah. biggest ones of the country. And back then, like it was unheard of to do over a million views on a video that just didn't happen unless it was Charlie bit my finger. And that video now is still, I think it's on like 20 million I'm views. Checking. I'm checking. I think it's higher than that because I've seen it at, at 20 million views already a year ago. It's at 32 million. Wow. Epic Sidemen Nerve Battle. Yeah. Four words headline, 32 million views, seven years in. Yeah. That and was I remember that video. It's, I think when we met, it was in the reel of the things you showed me. Ian Wright was the other one with the Bacardi shots. The, yeah, the Bacardi shots with tobacco sauce in it, I think. So it was like Hot Ones meets Bacardi. And so I remember that one and the Nerve video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember when I saw it, I was impressed by the views, but also the um, production quality values, the names in it, the action, the pace, everything was kick-ass in that one. Yeah. And yet it felt authentic enough that, you know, you didn't feel like, oh, this is Hollywood. It was just right at the limit. Yeah, yeah. Awesome video. No, yeah. And the guys had a lot of fun doing it. It was the, it was... That's the beauty of the UK, though. You can get people together a lot easier than you can in the US. The US is so big, but we got them all right. together. We made an amazing piece of content, and it's still delivering to this day. So you're welcome, Nerf. <laughs> Actually, was it already a trend at the time to make Nerf videos on YouTube, or did it become a trend after that? Because PDK Films, the entire 
channel is all about that. Mm-hmm. Of course, and making dozens of millions of videos every time. I booked, a, booked him a couple of times for the Nerf FPS series. Killer, mm-hmm. killer performance. Yeah, and great quality shoots too. Yeah, he's a cool kid. Um, yeah, we did some cool stuff with him with Epic too. But a lot of brands are scared to work in that space too because they're like, well, I'm not Nerf. And it's like, yeah, but that's fine. You could be. Yeah. Nerf was dying when it <laughs> Windows Video. It gave Nerf a second life, right? Mm. It, it was cool 20 years ago. It was going down a little bit because when you're cool at some point, there's a new toy in town. And then there was this new thing that you can make videos with it and you can do big wars and you can go bigger with it. Yeah. It became a big boy toy where before it was a little kid toy. And now it's a big boy toy. You can play it at 35, 40 years old and it's acceptable in society. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Epic sent me a big care package and one of the big things in it was like a giant Nerf gun. And I was like, oh, we should give this to our nephew. I said to my husband, he's like, I'm keeping the Nerf gun. I'm like, (laughs) chill out. So yeah, I mean, it goes to show it appeals to everyone. Actually, 90% of video game offices, video game development offices, the two things you're likely to find are empty pizza boxes at the entrance and Nerf guns on the desks because at some point when they're tired of programming at 4.30 p.m., they start shooting at each other. (laughs) Exactly. I'm happy with that. Pizza, Nerf, that works for me. All right, great. Thank you so much for your time and for everyone at home, if you want to know more about Big Karma and what we're doing, patreon.com slash Big Karma. We've talked about Patreon. We got one. We had to have one. No, it's been great, Pascal. Thank you so much. It's always a blast catching up. Thank you for your time. Great. And may Karma be with you.